This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Deepak Chopra is a New York Times bestselling author with more than 85 books translated into more than 40 languages, including 22 books that have been on the New York Times bestseller list in both fiction and nonfiction. He's the co-founder and the chairman of the, chairman of the board of the Chopra Center for Well-Being in, in Carlsbad, California, and the founder of the Chopra Foundation. Time Magazine has described Deepak Chopra as one of the top 100 heroes and icons of the country and credits him as the poet-prophet of alternative medicine. The World Post and Huffington Post Global Internet Survey ranked him one of the most influential thinkers in the world and one of the most influential thinkers in medicine. Ladies and gentlemen, we're here to celebrate Deepak's latest book, The Healing Self. Please welcome Deepak Chopra. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Dean Nelson. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dean, Nelson, Julie, the Warwicks. Thank you all for being here. I presume uh, all of you know how you got here. Right? <laughs> Let me show you how you really got here. So can we have the video, please?
Okay, so congratulations. <laughs> you, you made it and you're here now. At the moment of conception, you have uh, 25,000 genes. So we're not talking about these genes, but the genes that make a body. A gene is a stretch of DNA that codes for a protein. So we all begin life as proteins. Think of genes as words that become the flesh. DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. DNA is the letter that makes the word, the gene. Okay, so in English now I'm using 26 letters to communicate to you. But life uses only four letters. There are four chemical bases. And they're usually abbreviated as ATCG. So they stand for certain chemical bases, adenine, thymine, cytosine, guanine. But most biologists just refer to them as ATC and G. So all of life has only four letters. Everything from a microbe to a human being. Now the current scientific model, and science is a useful model. Science is not a method for exploring truth. Science is a method for exploring a certain model of the truth based on what we call observations, experiments, theories, all in human thought. So science, like religion, is a system of thought. Science, like theology, is a system of thought or philosophy. And science models reality with its own system. So according to the current scientific model, uh, the universe began about 13.8 billion years ago. How it began, no one knows. They call it the Big Bang, but it was neither big nor did it bang. Okay. <laughs> In any case, your DNA comes from atoms. The atoms, mostly in your body right now, are carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. That's 96% of all the atoms in your body. The remaining 4% are things like sulfur, phosphorus, the other elements of the periodic table. Where did they come from? These atoms were forged in the crucible of burning stars that are referred to as supernova. The current scientific model tells us that there could be two trillion galaxies with 700 sextillion stars. I don't know how to write that. Maybe one of you here does. Two trillion galaxies 700 sextillion stars. We live in the Milky Way galaxy, which is supposed to have 100 billion stars. Right next door is Andromeda, and then there's Virgo, and on and on. Think two trillion. And uncountable trillions of planets. Uh, right now, uh, in most universities, at least the big ones, there are departments of what they call astrobiology. So, um, actually there's one here in UCSD, Columbia, 
Harvard, MIT, Caltech. Astrobiologists are looking for life on other planets, exoplanets outside our solar system. And they look uh, for life based on or estimate that there may be life on other planets based on what they call a biosphere. And they seem to agree that there might be 60 billion habitable planets in our own Milky Way galaxy. Why am I sharing all this with you? And the reason is that uh, the atoms in your body right now, the carbon in your fingernails, maybe the nitrogen in your hair follicles, the oxygen going to your brain, the calcium in your skeleton, they could have come from different galaxies. In other words, it took the whole universe to have you come here tonight for this lecture. <laughs> Everything had to be very precise. These are, in, in science, we call the elements and forces of nature, like electromagnetism, gravity, strong and weak subatomic forces. The ratio of these to each other, these are called uh, constants, universal constants. And if any one of them was off by a decimal point, we wouldn't be having this conversation tonight. So I'm not speaking metaphorically. It took the universe to create you. During those nine months of um, embryogenesis in the womb, um, your body shows all the stages of biological evolution. So first there's cosmic evolution, then there's biological evolution. So you'll first look like a microorganism, and the current scientific model says that life on our planet began about 2.8 billion years ago. The planet itself is about little less than 5 billion years, and the first organisms were uh, microorganisms called chemolithoautotrophic hyperthermophiles. A complicated word, but chemo simply means chemicals. Autotrophic, they were reproducing already. They knew how to replicate themselves. Hyperthermophiles, because they lived on the rims of volcanoes. And for all those 2.8 billion years of biological evolution, um, there hasn't been a single break in the chain of being or the chain of existence. One little break in either cosmic evolution or biological evolution, we wouldn't be here. So by now you should be totally bewildered by your existence. <laughs> and I would say uh, bewilderment and, uh, and um, wonder are holy experiences, are sacred experiences. Says, you know, Rumi, the great Sufi poet says, exchange your cleverness for bewilderment. Because bewilderment brings humility, it brings reverence for existence, it brings the sacred very close to us. I've met many scientists, and I think they all agree, if they're really good scientists, that there's no explanation for existence. Just because we can describe it doesn't mean we can explain it. And moreover, there's no explanation for um, the awareness of existence. These are the two biggest mysteries in science today. What's the universe made of? We don't know, because most of it 
is invisible, a dark energy, dark matter. The 4% that's atomic, most of that is invisible, interstellar dust. The visible universe, 2 trillion galaxies, 700, 6 trillion stars, uncountable trillions of planets, is 0.01% of what exists. The rest is unknown or unknowable. How do you interact with something that's not even made of atoms? So it's a great mystery that we exist, but we can describe it. That doesn't mean we can explain it. Now in those nine months of uh, embryogenesis, as I said, after you go through all the stages of biological evolution, according to the current scientific model, on your way out, um, as you come out through the birth canal, uh, you inhale, you swallow, and you're covered by the vaginal secretions of your mother. And at this moment, there's a second inoculation of genes into your biological organism. So you had 25,000 genes from your parents, but now you acquire between 2 million to 20 million, depending on where you live <clears throat> on the planet and the environment and your contact with nature or the, your parents' contacts with nature. You acquire between 2 to 2 million extra genes. So we now know that you have only 1% of the genes in your biology right now are from your parents. 99% of the genetic information in your body right now is microbes, microbial. So you're technically speaking a few human cells hanging on to a bacterial colony. <laughs> and this genome, the microbiome, is all the microorganisms of our planet. They're in plants, they're in soil, they're in animals, they're on your skin, they're in your mouth, they're in your eyes, and very importantly, they're in your gut. Your microbiome, the second genome, and the human genome, they dance with each other, they play with each other to create uh, metabolites in your body, which are all the biochemicals that sustain your biological organism. And as the baby is now exposed to the world, all it has is experience. And the raw experience is, is just sound and taste and smell and sensation and color and form. The rest is a human construct, a human story. A baby doesn't know that's a shoe. All it experiences is a shape and a color and maybe if it wants to, it can taste and smell it, try to eat it, play with it. But the word shoe is a human construct. Similarly, the baby doesn't know it has a body or a hand or anything like that. This is a color, a shape, a smell, a texture, a sensation. The word body is a human construct for an experience. But as soon as we start creating these constructs, we then start to create the experience that we call a mind. A mind is the interpretation of experience. A body, which is literally the interpretation of sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts, and a physical universe. These are human constructs, useful constructs. 
because without these constructs, we wouldn't know how to navigate the human experience. And so life begins through play, through interaction with parents, and uh, through programming from culture, religion, history, mythology, all of that, it starts to create both experiences and interpretation of experiences. And now we know that as a result of these experiences, both those experiences that we call the outer world, this world out here, and the experiences in happening inside, the interpretation of those experiences that we call thoughts, and then likes, dislikes, pleasure, pain, all of that, and then ultimately even imagination and creativity and insight and intuition and introspection and joy and all the other negative experiences we have, a third structure begins to form in, the, in our body. And that's called the epigenome. Epi means above. So above the genome is a sheath of proteins that is actually being manufactured as a result of experiences. Every experience you have. Every experience, whether it's a mental experience or a perceptual experience or an emotion or even an image that you have in your consciousness, all those experiences get metabolized into the epigenome. And the epigenome then in turn regulates the activity of the genome and the microbiome. So it's very fascinating how this activity that we call the body-mind is a result of experiences, experiences of our ancestors, both human, animal, microbial, and um, ultimately the activity of the total universe. So right at this moment, your body is an activity of the total universe. And I say an activity. Your body is also an experience that you're having. I want to go a little deeper into this later, because you are not that which you call your biological organism. Your biological organism is an experience that you're having in something we call awareness. And that's a great mystery, what awareness or consciousness is. But your body-mind is not a thing. It's an experience. You're experiencing your body right now. Okay, and you've been experiencing many different kinds of bodies since you were born. You had a body of a baby, a toddler, a teenager, the body you have now, the body you came into this room with. They're all different bodies. Even with one breath that you breathe in, you breathe in 10 to the power of 22 atoms, one followed by 22 zeros. With every breath you breathe out, you breathe out 10 to the power of 22 atoms, so at the atomic level, you're breathing out bits and pieces of your heart and kidney and brain tissue. And technically speaking, we're all intimately sharing our organs right now. <laughs> the great American poet Walt Whitman once said, every atom that belongs to you as well belongs to me. So you might own your mortgage, but you don't own your body. Okay. Right this moment, you have uh, at least a million atoms in your body that were once in the body of Jesus Christ, or Buddha, or unfortunately, even Mr. Trump. 
So, in the last... In the last three weeks, a quadrillion atoms have gone through your body that have gone through the body of every other species. Because we're all part of the same biosphere. You know, eating, breathing, digestion, metabolism, elimination, sensory experience, our recycled thoughts, because nobody actually has original thoughts. We're just recycling the same thoughts, information, unless you're an Einstein or a Mozart or a Beethoven. Most of our thoughts are just recycled hypnosis of social conditioning. That which we call a body-mind is an activity. And it's a constantly changing activity. It's a verb. It's not a noun. In fact, there are no nouns in the universe. Nouns are conventions of language, but they don't reflect reality. Reality is ever-shifting, changing, transforming, recycling, evolving, and it never stops. It hasn't stopped for 13.8 billion years. It won't stop right now. With this understanding that your body is an activity and an experience, I'd like to share with you how this applies to what we call the healing self. And I've taken a lot of time to do this, but I thought I'd give you the big picture because the details are all in the book you're holding in your hand. But why this term, the healing self? The word healing is actually the same word as the word holy. The word holy is the same word as the word whole, all, wholeness. So healing is the return of the memory of wholeness. You're not just a body-mind in a world. You are the world in a body-mind. In fact, you're not just the world. You're the whole universe in a body-mind. And this is not metaphorically speaking. This is absolutely, you know, we're talking about scientific modeling of what we call reality, which is still very mysterious because atoms and molecules and force fields and gravity and everything that we call reality, these are human constructs for modes of knowing and experience. And um, that's where the mystery is. How do we know what we know? How do we know this experience? Nobody knows at this moment because all of science is based on what we call um, the idea that matter, physical matter, is, uh, is what exists. The ontological primitive is matter. And that cannot explain any experience. Molecules and atoms cannot explain thought or feeling or emotion or even perceptual experience. That's another topic, but right now what I want to show, share with you, and if you can have the slides, please, which we do here, is this diagram in the book more or less says everything about the current way to think of a human biological organism as a system. Right at the top, above the brain, is mind-body therapies, and even above that should be consciousness. Then you have the brain. And there are three kinds of brains we have. Uh, reptilian or instinctive brain, an emotional or limbic brain, 
and a cortical or intellectual brain. They all reflect different periods of biological evolution. Your instinctive brain is 300 million years old. Your emotional brain is 100 million years old. And your intellectual brain is only 4 million years old and grew rapidly and explosively once we started using words or language, both oral and, uh, and uh, written, to express experience. Right now, I'm expressing my thoughts and my ideas based on my experience and other people's experience, and we're exchanging ideas. And as a result, actually, our brains are interacting, and as a result, our bodies are interacting. There's no such thing as separate self at any level, at molecular, biological, mental, etc. No organism exists by itself. In fact, you exist because of millions of microorganisms. I like to think that we are the awakening of uh, microbial consciousness. Humans <laughs> are the awakening of microbial consciousness. But anyway, those three brains um, regulate what's happening in the body, or so we thought. That was a top-down approach. You see from the emotional brain, uh, on, the, on the left side of where I'm, the brain is, um, the endocrine system. So your emotional brain regulates your pituitary gland, which regulates all the hormones in your body. And then... Um, there's another nerve that's coming from your midbrain or your reptilian brain called the vagus nerve, which it turns out is very important. The vagus nerve is um, now referred to as the most important nerve that regulates the viscera in our body. The viscera means the organs in our body. So the word vagus in Latin is related to the word vagabond in English. We now know that the vagus nerve regulates your facial expressions. Are you happy? Are you sad? Are you stressed? Are you relaxed? Are you flexible? Are you adaptable? On and on. It regulates your eye movements. It regulates the tone of your voice. So with new technologies, just looking at the tone of the voice, facial expressions, you'll soon have algorithms that will be able to predict what's happening in the rest of your body. So the vagus nerve goes from um, the face down into the voice box and then the heart, uh, where it regulates heart rate variability. If you're relaxed, if you're easy, if you're adaptable, your heart rate variability is increased. If you're stressed, your heart rate variability is, is fixed or more rigid. And that's another sign uh, of stress. Uh, Heart rate variability is so sensitive that it can pick up uh, if you didn't sleep well last night or if you had an argument or if you have a hangover. It can pick it up, heart rate variability. The vagus nerve then goes through the diaphragm into the abdomen where it regulates uh, all the organs in the body and ultimately pierces the colon and the intestine and regulates the activity of the microbiome Therefore, gene expression from those 2 million to 20 million microbial genes, which in turn also produce the same peptides that the brain makes, like, uh, for example, uh, serotonin, oxytocin, opiates, 
uh, dopamine. There's a new one that is being talked about um, by scientists called anandamide, which is the peptide of joy or bliss uh, that some people make in large amounts during meditation or when they're having peak experiences or transcendent experiences. So from that, then you see a feedback to the immune system. On the right-hand side, you see all those immune organs, uh, T-cells, B-cells, macrophages, leukocytes, and they're regulated by these uh, uh, brain peptides, but they also happen to be gut peptides. So today when you say I have a gut feeling about such and such, you're speaking accurately, metaphorically. In fact, you should trust your gut feelings in your heart because they haven't yet learned to doubt their own thinking, uh, as the brain has, the cortical brain in particular. And then there's a feedback loop. So it's all one system. The way we were trained in medicine, at least I was, uh, and still people are, is something called reductionism, which means you break up the body into different parts, into organs, then you break up the organs into tissues, the tissues into molecules, the molecules into atoms, the atoms into particles, and ultimately you're left with nothing. You know, because particles are waves of possibility in some infinite nothingness. The new way of looking at the body is what we call holism, holy, whole, that is systems biology, but the system itself is an activity of a bigger system that we call the universe. And if you really understand systems biology, then there are no such thing as parts. Parts are activities of the whole. Am I making sense? Are you getting this? Yeah, okay. Okay, so once we understand that, that, you know, because we have limited time, I'm going to talk to you about the six most important pillars of well-being. You'll find a lot more detail in the book. You'll find the complexity of the interaction of all these. But these are six very important things that regulate your biology. Our biology moves between two extremes. One extreme is, let's call it homeostasis or self-regulation or healing. And so our natural state is one of self-regulation. You know, you say, how did you get here from 13.8 billion years to now? You have no idea, it just happened. And the self is that which is regulating. That's the word we use, the self. Now, self happens to be in our construct and Rudy, who's my co-author, who's a neuroscientist and a geneticist, we use the word self to mean the innermost fundamental ontological primitive of existence, being, or consciousness, or awareness, okay? which is regulating your body, and you don't have to do anything. It's happening all by itself. Now, we interfere with that. That's because of what today we call threat, or fear, or separation, or stress. It begins with fear. I'm separate from you, I'm separate from this. It's all about me. You know? Illness and wellness. I, illness begins with I, and wellness begins with we. Have you ever thought about that? Okay. 
So if I'm only thinking of myself, separate from everything else, then that is the experience that we call stress. Stress, stress is the perception of threat. It starts with fear. Then it becomes anger, when also resentment, hostility. You know, animals can have these emotions, but human beings are unique. If you kick a dog, the dog also feels pain and may have memory, and you, you know, meet that dog five years later, it might attack you, but unlike a human being, it won't plan for five years how to get even. <laughs> so we have all these resentments, grievances, and then complex things like guilt and shame and depression, uh, uniquely human. And of course, if you have pets, then you can, and because of your interaction with them, you can give them the same uh, emotions. Dogs and pets can also get depressed in interaction with humans. But they don't usually have constructs, like your dog doesn't know, you know how much money you make or what your title is. <laughs> I once asked uh, President Obama if Bo knew he was the president of the country. His dog, and they had no idea, right? That he's sitting in the Oval Office. So, anyway, these are the six things, and uh, I won't go into great details about them, but sleep is a spiritual experience because what happens in deep sleep is first the excitations of the waking state, which is perception. Right now, this I presume everyone's in the waking state, and <laughs> what the waking state is, perceptual activity. Perceptual activity is an activity of consciousness. It's an excitation of consciousness. Consciousness is excited and it creates this experience that we call perception, then we interpret as the physical world and the physical body. At night, what happens is these excitations assume a very subtle form and we call it the dream state. Not realizing that this right now is a lucid and vivid dream. This right now is a lucid and vivid dream because your perceptual activity is constantly shifting. Your body is constantly shifting. So what happened to the child that you were once a child? It's gone. What happened, forget the child, what happened to yesterday? It's gone. Forget yesterday, what happened to this morning? It's gone. Forget this morning, what happened to five minutes ago? It's gone. Forget five minutes ago, what happened to a minute ago? It's gone. By the time you hear my sentence, it's over. That's why Wittgenstein, the great German philosopher, he said, our life is a dream, we are asleep, but once in a while we wake up enough to know that we are dreaming. <laughs> and what do we wake up to is that which is projecting this perceptual experience that we call everyday physical reality, but all it is is an on-off excitation of consciousness as perceptions. So at night, a different kind of dream. And then as we go into deep sleep, all the excitations disappear. There's no experience, but there's still awareness, right? Because if somebody screams your name in the dream or pinches you or whatever, or even have a thought, suddenly you come out of it. And so we can say deep sleep is the closest to our spirit. And that's why it renews us 
And that's why in some of the Eastern wisdom traditions, um, the techniques of yoga, nidra, etc., are meant to wake up consciousness even in the deep sleep state. In any case, deep sleep and dream state are very, very important for your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. And that's why when you wake up in the morning, you feel renewed. Actually, now we know that deep sleep consciousness is very active in a different way, removing amyloid from your brain. And people actually, now we know that one of the greatest risk factors for Alzheimer's is lack of delta sleep. And actually, lack of sleep is also a risk factor for premature death from inflammation and cardiovascular disease, which is linked to other diseases. Sleep is very, very important as a a process for renewal. Your immune system gets fine-tuned. Your endocrine system starts to self-regulate. One thing we now also know that obesity is a result frequently of just lack of sleep. Diabetes is a result, type 2 diabetes, lack of sleep because there's dysfunction of both of the immune system when you have lack of sleep and also the endocrine system, hormones like leptin, ghrelin, which regulate appetite, satiety, metabolism, all get, all get reset in deep sleep. Meditation and stress management. We have now plenty of research. We have some members of the Chopra Foundation sitting right here in the front um, that were very gracious to fund some of the research we did along with others. And now with, along with UCSD, Harvard, UCSF, um, Duke University, Scripps right here, uh, we've done studies that show that during meditation, all the genes that cause homeostasis or healing go up, some 17-fold. So all the genes that cause uh, inflammation, which is the background in most disease, uh, most chronic disease, um, they go down very significantly. The level of the enzyme telomerase, which regulates our biological clock, uh, goes up. In our one-week retreat here at the Chopra Center, it went up by 40%, the enzyme telomerase. No no drug does that, by the way. So meditation, uh, along with all the other things I'm mentioning, actually is uh, a very important factor in self-regulation. So one extreme is self-regulation or healing. The other extreme is low-grade inflammation, which is responsible in 90% of all chronic illness. Only 5% of disease-related genetic mutations are fully penetrant, which means they guarantee the disease. So if somebody has a gene mutation like uh, Angelina Jolie had, uh, a BRCA gene, that's a fully penetrant uh, gene. But that's less than 5% of all cancer. That's less than 5% of all disease, autoimmune, whatever. That's where the new technologies like CRISPR and gene editing and all will be very useful. But 95% of all gene mutations that cause disease only increase the risk of disease, do not guarantee the disease, which means you can do something about that. Okay, Um, you'll see a lot about meditation in the book. Uh, Movement, Um, I should be walking a little more here to (laughs) keep up with my 10,000 steps. So 
It's recommended that we walk about 10,000 steps. You don't have to do vigorous exercise, go to the gym or be lifting weights. If you walk 10,000 steps, you're actually pretty good in terms of keeping your body dynamically active. But now we also have very interesting research on yoga and meditation uh, again at the Chopra Center. I think Paul Mills is somewhere here. Paul, are you here? There, he's the director of research, professor at UCSD, responsible for directing all the research we do, coordinating with all the other centers. Uh, we now know that yoga and meditation and pranayam have very specific effects, primarily, I think, because of this vagus nerve. When you're doing yoga asanas, like uh, cat-cow or sun salutation, you're stimulating the vagus nerve. When you're doing breathing techniques, you're doing the same. And so that has a very specific effect. In fact, we can create a whole map of which nerves, which visceral nerves are specifically stimulated during the yoga asanas for which uh, organ in the body. Pranayam similarly. There are breathing techniques that will increase metabolism, decrease metabolism, cool you down, warm you up. So this is a whole different uh, way of looking at our biological organisms. Emotions, for, uh, for many decades, people have known that the emotions that we call fear, anger, hostility, resentment, grievances, uh, guilt, shame, depression, all cause inflammation. But now the opposite is also true. If you are feeling love, compassion, joy, empathy, equanimity, gratitude, um, your body moves in the direction of homeostasis or self-regulation. So, in fact, again, uh, Paul uh, published a study along with uh, some of us. He was the lead investigator where people kept a gratitude journal. These were people with chronic heart disease and everything improved, uh, including inflammation goes down when you experience an emotion like gratitude. It's impossible to feel hostility uh, and even fear when you're experiencing gratitude. Nutrition and nourishment, I think this is very uh, significant now, particularly, because our food in general, food that's manufactured, refined, processed, um, has a lot of refined sugar or has chemicals, Animals these days, at least industrial food production, they're pumped with estrogens, steroids, antibiotics, and even petroleum products, pesticides, organocytes, uh, petroleum products that uh, cause inflammation. And they cause inflammation in the microbial genes as well. As a result, inflammation in the whole body. So our food is contaminated. Also, 30% um, of the microbiome has disappeared in many parts of the industrialized world because of, of uh, pesticides and organocides and petroleum products in um, industrial food production. This is a big, big um, uh, threat to our civilization right now that we are destroying the microbiome which is most of our genetic information. So as far as possible, try to avoid food that comes from a factory um, that is processed and refined. 
and um, is not directly connected to the earth or to life in general. Um, the healthiest foods are plant-based foods. The healthiest uh, uh, food for your microbiome is um, a diversity of plant-based foods. So the more diverse your plant-based foods are, the healthier your microbiome will be. Now, I mentioned you can't change the genes that you got from your parents, but you can change their activity epigenetically through these simple pillars of well-being. But you can change the population of your microbial genes, which are 99% of the genetic information, just by changing your diet. And that's very interesting. And I know we have some people here from Campbell's Soup. Uh, George here is an Ayurvedic expert. George just raised your hands, and we're getting them interested in creating healthy foods uh, based on Ayurvedic principles, um, uh, which are principles of life, basically. Uh, and we'll be able to show that hopefully the microbiome shifts almost within a few days. We're also working right now with a company called Biome that can do a personalized microbiome. You should try it out. So, you know, you can create, find out what is the unique microbial population in your gut and which foods are uh, more uh, effective in you because there's no universal diet actually for everyone because we all have a different uh, microbial and genetic and human gene population as well. Okay, and lastly here, I want to mention biological rhythms and grounding. This is very much a part of Ayurveda as well. So uh, there are four rhythms that uh, program our body. As the earth spins on its axis, we have something called the circadian rhythm. Anybody who's had jet lag knows what a disruption in circadian rhythm is. But circadian rhythm is also linked to seasonal rhythms as the earth goes around the sun. Also linked to lunar rhythms because um, the movement of the sun, moon, and earth uh, have biological effects on our body, our body being part of the activity of the universe. And then there are uh, tidal rhythms. Uh, there's an ocean inside us. We were once in part of the ocean. When we stepped out of it, we brought it with us. It's our body circulation and body fluids. So all these rhythms are very important, whether they're seasonal, circadian, or tidal, gravitational, lunar rhythms. And once again, recently we got interested in just the phenomenon of grounding. So when people walk on the beach, or people walk barefoot on the earth, or when people walk even barefoot on grass, they feel better. The theory is that they're resetting their biological rhythms, but also a connection to the earth um, directly, which is, you know, we are recycled earth and water. Um, it uh, brings negative ions from the earth into your body, neutralizes the excess free radicals. So now we are working with many companies, but one in particular um, that looks at, and Clint, you're here. Uh, Clint, 
He is the original engineer behind grounding. He's created grounding devices, grounding chairs, grounding mats. So you could be here, but uh, sitting on a grounding mat or a chair and connected through the grounding wire directly to the earth. And actually now research shows that inflammation goes down and uh, the body's biological clock starts to reset. This last year's Nobel Prize was about biological clocks, but Ayurveda has spoken about these clocks for thousands of years, that we are part of a cosmic symphony, and our biology at least dances to it, even though we can't hear the tune. So that's Viome, by the way. Viome.com slash perfect health is the website if you want to get your microbiome tested. And uh, I'll just speak for five minutes on spiritual well-being, which is part of the last part of the book. And uh, you can be very healthy, have a long lifespan. The longer you live, the more likelihood is that extreme old age will cause some kind of infirmity, and death is inevitable. So this has created, for humans at least, something called existential suffering and is the basis for philosophy, theology, religion, and every other attempt in um, unraveling what we call reality. So, in the Vedantic tradition, um, here are the five causes of existential suffering or human suffering. They're called kleshas in Sanskrit. Klesha means uh, human suffering not knowing the true nature of reality. This is not reality. This is an experience in reality. And it's a transient experience. It's over as soon as it's born. Birth and death are happening all the time to experience. A thought is born, it dies. A perception is born, it dies. An image is born, it dies. An emotion is born, it dies. And it's happening in an eternal now. Now is not a moment in time. You've never seen a moment show up, go away, followed by another moment. There's no such thing. Now is timeless awareness in which experiences arising and subsiding eternally. Now is being. Now is consciousness. Now is uh, awareness. No one has experienced not being aware. Not being aware is not an experience, by definition. Okay, but not knowing the true nature of reality leads to grasping and clinging at experience. Experience of that which we call mind, body, the world, leads to the fear of impermanence. A false, constricted, habitual self called the ego and the fear of death. So... Our wisdom tradition says truth is contained in the first klesha, not knowing the true nature of reality. And all the disciplines of self-exploration, self-inquiry, meditation, mindfulness, awareness of breath, awareness of sensation, awareness of perceptual experiences, awareness of mental space, that these days going with the word mindfulness, um, which is not really a good word because mindfulness implies a full mind. Um, it's an awarefulness is a 
clumsy word, so we'll go along with mindfulness. But being aware of experience as it's happening, being aware of choices as you make them, is the highest intelligence. And then being aware of being aware is even higher than that. So before I end, because I know that the human construct of time is passing by, um, I am going to ask you a question, and I'd like to an- you to answer with um, the statement, yes. Okay? Okay. So here's the question. Are you aware? A little more enthusiastic, please. Are you aware? Yes. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you the same question, but don't answer it till I raise my hand. Okay? Everybody clear on that? I'm going to ask you the question. Don't answer it till I raise my hand. So, are you aware? The question, are you aware, is a thought. The answer, yes, is a thought. Thought arises in awareness, is experienced in awareness, and subsides in awareness. The same principle applies to any emotion, any perception. These are activities of awareness in awareness. The activities appear to be in time. But awareness is not in time. You can use other words for awareness. Spirit, soul, presence, Holy Ghost, (laughs) whatever you want. Um, Einstein, God, Brahman, doesn't matter. Without awareness, no experience. Where is awareness? It has no form. Therefore, it's not in time. But without it, there's no experience of that which we call form. Every form is a phenomenon. That's why I said in the beginning, every form is an activity. This is an activity. It's a phenomenon. But what is the phenomenon? It's the arising and subsiding of sensations, images, feelings, thoughts, perceptions, which are activities of awareness, known in awareness, and made out of awareness. This is all made out of awareness. This too. And its interpretation as well. So, um, I'm going to ask you the same question. Are you aware? This time don't answer it. Just be aware of being Be aware of that which is listening. Are you aware? This is the true self. Rumi has a poem where he says, God's language is silence. Everything else is poor translation. (laughs) So thanks for listening to this poor translation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.